Shut up and sit down. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Fight for Liberty show. Uh, today we have uh, another great guest. Uh, he is one of the powerhouses of the New Hampshire Libertarian Party, ran for Senate this year uh, against Janine Shaheen. That's a hard word to say. Um, please welcome my friend, Justin O'Donnell. How's it going, Justin? Not bad, David. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Uh, so I like to start off uh, everybody's first appearance on the show with kind of just your political testimony, like what happened and who existed in your life that, that kind of got you to believe what you believe now and kind of how you came to the LP. Um, are you familiar with uh, Jim Bouchard of Maine? Yes. So he had a book called Crazy Angry Libertarian. Um, not saying that's what brought me over, but he has a great philosophy that he kind of outlines in the book where he thinks that nobody ever becomes a libertarian. Um, you just have a kind of a culmination of life experiences that lead you to the realization that you always were one. Hmm. And I, th I think myself, along with many people, when you really think about it, that's the path that we come to the Libertarian Party. Um, for me, it was mostly my military service. It was mostly... Uh, my time in the military and the things we did when I was in the military, um, including the occupation of Boston. Uh, the time I was uh, NCOIC in charge of a military checkpoint in an American city. Um, yeah, that's a little bit, a little <laughs> bit frightening. Yeah, um, but I, I mean, the full story there was I was on the security detail for the Boston Marathon in 2013. Um, and after the uh, bombs had gone off the finish line, um, three days later, we finally left Boston after walking down the city uh, in true military lockdown fashion. People weren't allowed to leave their homes. We were going door to door searching. Um, no warrants, nothing like that. It was, hey, there's, we think two to three bad guys on the loose. So we're going to lock down an entire city. Nobody's allowed to go anywhere. And then. A few months later, I was running security for the 4th of July in Boston as well. And uh, the 4th of July was a little bit different. We went into it after having just had a terrorist attack in Boston. So we put everything we could possibly put, uh, mobile camera units. Uh, we had uh, ATF, DEA, FBI, Boston Police, State Police, uh, SWAT teams, National Guard, Navy, EOD, Coast Guard, everything like to the ninth to do security for the bottom and esplanade for the fourth of july and at one point i had a fresh second lieutenant this kid had graduated college a few weeks earlier had just gotten his commission and uh, <laughs> and he was assigned to be the officer in charge of the security detail and i'm and he one of the best officers i've ever had because he came up to me he's like all right o'donnell you're in charge i'm here to learn i'm like great you're not an idiot <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but we were walking between two checkpoints um, around lunchtime. I was delivering food to guys at different checkpoints. And at one point, somebody had just sat down in front of us in a lawn chair in the middle of the sidewalk. 
and started reading a book. And the lieutenant starts freaking out. He's like, you can't obstruct this. We're going to have you arrested. You need to move. And the guy just sits there and keeps reading, ignoring him, right under a mobile camera unit in front of a checkpoint, uh, just obstructing traffic. And like I'm watching this, and then I just die laughing. I, I burst into tears laughing. And my lieutenant looks at me. He's like, what's so funny? I'm like, he's reading 1984. <laughs> and he's like, <laughs> he's like I don't get it. That as I'm explaining the plot of 1984 to this college graduate, I'm starting to realize, shit, we're Big Brother. We're the bad guy. And, and that was kind of the moment it all started to click and hit for me. And like I had been following libertarians on Twitter and YouTube, Julie Borowski, Rand Paul, all, all through college up before that. But I think that was really the moment where it clicked. I was like, ah, shit. I'm the bad guy. <laughs> yeah, I um, I think a similar realization um, is what stopped me from actually joining. I had like I had all the paperwork. Uh, my dad's a Marine. Both of my my one of my grandpas is Air Force. The other one's Army. Like my entire family is military. So I was fully planning on enlisting when I graduated high school, like my dad did, my whole life, and then. Probably around 15, 16, I watched Taps actually was the beginning of the end of that fantasy. And not because of not because of the actual plot line of the movie, but just the the realistic part in the beginning of like what military school is like. Um, and my dad was explaining to me how much worse boot camp is than that. And I was like, <laughs> that doesn't sound like a fun thing to do. Uh, maybe I don't want to do that. I've always been a little bit rebellious and, and uh, you know, class clown kind of person that doesn't do well with authority. So I was like, maybe the military is not is not the best fit. <laughs> no, it, honestly, I think one of the biggest atrocities the United States government um, engages in on a daily basis is sending military recruiters into high schools. Mm-hmm. Um, they're. The, recruiting kids who've been brainwashed for years to think what's going on is going on without um, at an age where they're not legally able to sign a contract for anything else and asking them to sign their life away to this monolithic behemoth of violence and force um, that does not engage in what it's purported to engage in, but goes all over the world and essentially engaging in terrorism. Um, And they recruit these kids at an age where they don't know any better. Um, and they utilize public education to create a pomp and circumstance around patriotism to brainwash the kids into it. Mm-hmm. I think you can you can really tell the true uh, motives behind the government when you realize that at 16 you can sign up for the Marine Corps, but not the Peace Corps. <laughs> uh, it's it's basically the same idea, just one is killing people, the other one's not. And yeah. the government severely helps push one of those two groups of people. Right. And, and to the point where they spend hundreds of millions of dollars a year advertising the military um, on public sports events and TV commercials. It's, if, if, the mili- I, I, if the military got back to the root and its core purpose of what's outlined in the Constitution as a defensive mechanism to help protect and defend the United States uh, against encroachments from uh, foreign enemies, 
then we would need a military a fraction of the size that we have right now. We wouldn't need the recruiting. We wouldn't need to be spending billions of dollars on advertising every year. Right. Um, and probably faith in the institution would rise to the point where you'd see an increase in people trying to join voluntarily um, and could raise your standards and tell people, no, nah, you're not good enough. Right. <laughs> wouldn't wouldn't that be a great system where we were actually right. able to pick and choose who we're teaching how to use these deadly weapons and making sure that they're people with an IQ over seven? <laughs> well, I mean, don't get me wrong. I think everybody should be able to learn how to use the deadly weapons. I mean, that's, uh, that is... <laughs> I'm a huge fan of recreational nukes. I think everyone should have their own deterrent from government aggression. So, I even I have a banner that's that's permanently on this website for recreational rocket launchers. It's my favorite hashtag on Twitter because everyone just goes nuts. They're like, "Ah, rocket launchers are bad." It's like, no, they're not. It always annoyed me that I could buy a grenade launcher at a gun show, but not a rocket launcher. Right. It's so it's, there. Some of these restrictions are so pointless. Yeah. Um, my friend Reed uh, Coverdale, he hosts the, the naturalist capitalist went basically became famous off of a video of him comparing an AR-15 and an M1 Grand. Uh, and he kind of goes along this uh, sarcastic talking points. It's so glad we got rid of all those scary assault rifles with the bump stocks and the four grips and the extended mags and all this stuff. Those are super dangerous. All we need are these nice hunting safe rifles made of wood, you know, can't do anything bad. And then he just, he loads a clip and bump fires it without a bump stock and just, brrr. you know, if you yeah. know anything about these guns, yeah. M1 grand bullet is about yay big and AR bullets about yay big. Right. It's like completely much more dangerous will blow actual holes in a human instead of just <laughs> yeah. stopping. So, believe it or not, so the um, NATO 5.56 cartridge was actually designed to be less lethal uh, than the 308 and 762. Um, and NATO adopted the 5.56 as a battle cartridge for the M16 AR platform because it was less deadly because military doctrine at the time uh, assumed that if you shot somebody with something less deadly, then it would take them out of the fight. The two people to carry them back from the front lines out of the fight, the medic to treat them out of the fight and cost their home country tens of thousands of dollars and, and tens of thousands of hours to treat them and rehabilitate them. Um, and it was more along the lines of economic warfare against the Soviet Union. We figured that would be a better strategy because if the Soviets killed an American soldier, he's out of the fight. If the Americans wound a Soviet soldier, five people are out of the fight, and it costs them $100,000 to treat him. That's brilliant, actually. I did not know that. That is a yeah. genius tactic. Yeah, and it's funny. It's actually considered cruel and unusual to hunt deer with an AR-15 because it won't kill them with one shot. Mm -hmm. um, they'll they'll run off, suffer, and bleed out, and you won't be able to find the body. Right. And the meat's going to taste significantly worse because they're going to tense up completely. Right. Uh, yeah, just you need a clean headshot. Just... Right, but let's be honest. Most, peop most people and most Marines can't pull that off. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. Um, yeah. yeah, I have the uh, I have the blessing of being raised by a marine sniper, so I've been, <laughs> able, I've been able to hit targets at fifty yards since I was like eight or nine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, it's a little bit different when they're moving through dense underbrush, but 
That is true. I have actually never been uh, big game hunting at, at all in my life. I've meant to more than once. I almost did when I was in New Hampshire uh, over last fall, but I've just I've never had the the license or the the guns on me at the time to to go do some good hunting. I used to hunt all the time before I moved to New Hampshire. Since I moved to New Hampshire, I haven't found the time. <laughs> well, there's so many other fun things to do in New Hampshire. Like go and yell at the governor. Or yell at the governor. Uh, which actually uh, brings me to my next question. Uh, so you, you ran for Senate this year um, against Janine Shaheen, which I'm going to say right this time. Jean Shaheen. Uh, Jean Shaheen. Um, any plans for a challenge for Hassan or Sununu in uh, 22? Not at the moment. In fact, my plan for 2022 is to try and convince Nicholas Sarwark to run against Hassan. Okay. I I dig that. He doesn't know yet. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to get him on the show. Uh, so maybe if I succeed in that mission, I'll, I'll help him try to push that. Um, I like the fact that he ran this year. Um, I really enjoy the fact that we have a few libertarians with actual credentials to run for uh, judicial branch offices because those are kind of few and far between. So the fact that he's actually deserving of that position that he ran for was kind of a nice change of pace for the Libertarian Party. It was, yeah, it was kind of annoying when the Liberty Republicans tried to have him thrown off the ballot, though. What's a Liberty Republican? It's a Republican who claims <laughs> to be Libertarian. <laughs> yeah, I could I could talk all day about how terrible that group is. Um, <laughs> I work I worked for Young Americans for Liberty this year, um, and a couple other Republican groups like that. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I've I've knocked doors from some for some actual neocons now, uh, including Lindsey Graham and Donald Trump. Yeah, we had um, a group of great kids up in New Hampshire who were working for Young Americans for Liberty this year during the campaign. Mm -hmm. And uh, they took a break during their door knocking one day when I had Joe Jorgensen in Manchester to come to see Joe Jorgensen at our event. And two of them got fired from Young Americans for Liberty for it. Ooh. I did not hear that story. Yeah, the state director for Yao actually locked them out of the hotel that night and kicked them out and left them homeless in the middle of New Hampshire. Jesus. Okay. <laughs> new new reasons to hate Yao. <laughs> um, and I, I've been trying to go a little bit easier on them in, on the show lately because um, I do still have friends in the organization and I have one of their state chairs coming on the show later in the week. Um but they're just awful sometimes. And uh, unfortunately, call out awful people when they're. I like to break it down. Yao is a great organization with terrible leadership. Yeah. Like, yeah. They they could do a lot of good and they choose not to. Mm -hmm. They so I think they started with the with the complete best of intentions, uh, but like everything in politics, it, it came down to money. Uh, Yep. Their donors aren't going to donate to them if they lose elections, so they're not going to uh, work with not viable candidates. 
that mm-hmm. that step of the process i i completely agree with and then they just started to find more neocons that were viable than liberty republicans and uh started being as long as you're okay on guns and taxes you're a liberty republican doesn't yeah. matter if you want to uh overturn roe v wade and ban abortions and lock people up for having them it doesn't matter if you want to not only keep the war on drugs but expand it i worked for a a state rep race in michigan which is legal Uh, it's a legal state and this kid wanted to undo that and make it back to being a prohibition state and re criminalize marijuana and this so was a, this was a yale endorsed candidate we're having a race in the new hampshire house in the next couple of weeks for the speaker of the house position because the elected speaker just actually died of COVID a week ago um so they're replacing him uh the republican candidate jason osborne who is a free stater a liberty republican a yale endorsed candidate even though last cycle he spent a significant amount of his time campaigning against the repeal of the death penalty. Yeah. See, that's that's one of those issues that I, <laughs> I'll admit I am still a little bit on the fence about. Uh, well, think I, about it this way. Think about it this way. I'm not necessarily anti-death penalty. I am anti the administration of the death penalty by the state justice system, which has been proven to be inefficient and inaccurate. Right. Because I'm all for wood chippers for politicians. Like, guillotines serve a vital purpose in the free market. <laughs> right. Uh, so I definitely think there is, there is an argument to be made against uh, like life imprisonment as an as a alternative. That argument is invalid at the moment because at the moment, keeping somebody alive in prison for 40 years is cheaper than killing them. Uh, for whatever freaking reason, the the American justice system just doesn't do things well or correctly. Uh, a lethal injection is like half a million dollars, so we could actually keep them alive in prison. For much lethal time. injection is about to get a lot more expensive too. Right. Um. So believe it or not, the drug companies that make the lethal injection drugs a couple of years ago decided we're not doing this anymore. We're not making lethal injection drugs. Um, the state of Kentucky, I believe it was, tried to compel them to make more lethal injection drugs, and they went to court over it. And the court said, no, they have a right to stop making the drugs. They don't have to do it. You can't compel them to do it. And all the lethal injection drugs that exist have an expiration date on them. Um, so that's why you're seeing a lot of executions in states like Texas, Georgia, and federally being rushed right now is because their stockpile of lethal injection drugs are expiring, and there is no availability to resupply. Until they can convince another drug company to make them. Interesting. That would explain why Trump is using his last month of office to murder a bunch of people. Yeah, but I find it fascinating because there's still one person on death row in New Hampshire. And New Hampshire has no lethal injection drugs. They have no ability to execute that person by lethal injection. Um, so even though we repealed the death penalty, they did not repeal it retroactively. So this person will still be executed. And he's exhausted all of his appeals and his execution comes up in a couple of years um, per the state constitution. And the state constitution says that the only way to execute somebody other than lethal injection is with a public hanging a capital square. And <laughs> I'm 
really interested to see what's going to happen when the governor puts out bid requests to build a gallows on the state house common. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be an interesting day. I might, right. I might have to drive back out to New Hampshire to see that one. Right. It's, it's like I keep telling people, they're not going to execute it. Like the governor's going to commute that sentence because there's no way the governor wants to oversee a public hanging. It'll be the yeah. first public hanging in the Western Hemisphere since the Civil War. That would be that would be a, a fun little uh, you know where the live free or die. So you know, right. I mean, part is important. I mean, the guy's on death row for killing a cop. Um, me yeah. personally, I think that's a violation of the Fourteenth Amendment's equal protection clause because a capital crime killing an agent of the state gives the agent of the state more preferential treatment before the law than your average person. Right. Which is just a, a fact of life at this point. Uh, right. It was the annoying part. In New Hampshire, somebody could shoot up a school. They could go in and kill 30 kids, and they would get life in prison. Kill the cop. They got the death penalty. Yeah. That sounds about right. I'm sure. No. Not not really. No. no. Or a state rep. Believe it or not, they list state representatives as agents of the state in that law as well. That's a lot of people that could get you the death penalty. You might. We only have four hundred. In, in New Hampshire, you go into a Walmart and start shooting. You're likely to hit a state rep accidentally. It's, yeah, it's not. <laughs> it's not out of the realm of possibility. It's like duck hunting with a scatter gun. Right. <laughs> well, I think that was one of my favorite things about being in New Hampshire is just just existing in the state of New Hampshire for about three months i think i met i met about a half a dozen state reps not at like tulsi events or something like that just like out knocking doors or eating at a diner or something like that i had a state rep buy me dinner once uh because i was eating at a diner with a tulsi shirt on she was a big bernie girl and she paid for my dinner invited me over to her table with her uh boyfriend and had a nice little meal. Yeah, it's the Nick Sarwark lives three doors down from me. Three doors the other way is one of my two state reps. I can go over to the Libertarian Club on the other side of town, and there'll be five or six state reps that hang out there uh, from the Republican side. Um, I go down to there's a social dinner they have in Nashua every Sunday. Seven or eight state reps will be there every week. Um, or I go to Castro's Cigar Bar, the Castro's back room. It's where the magic happens. Um, and myself and AJ Olding have actually successfully gotten legislation changed or killed by smoking cigars in a back room dingy bar with state reps. That sounds like the most like 50s thing I've ever heard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, there's a there is a cigar bar. There's a location in Nashua and a location in Manchester, and at both locations, state reps just hang out, and they're in there. So we go in there. It's a dingy back room. The owner is a fairly libertarian guy, um, not active or anything, but he has called for libertarians to help oppose the state when the state was bothering him before. <laughs> um, but like we've gone in and there'll be five or six state reps just sitting there watching a football game. It's like, Oh, Mr. O'Brien, can I have a conversation with you about HB 411? <laughs> and we can, and we can just have the conversation about the bill going to the transportation committee and why it needs to die. And we have successfully changed the minds on state reps over cigars in a back room 
actually having conversations with them like normal people once you realize the fact that this is New Hampshire. We have 400 state reps. They're unpaid. They're just normal people. Mm-hmm. Like, it's a volunteer job. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's the most representative democracy in the world. Yeah, it is the second largest English-speaking parliamentary body in the world behind only the United States Congress, but we have less than 2 million people in the state. <laughs> right. Yeah, so by by ratio, it's I think it's the most yeah. the most representative easily. Uh, your average state rep represents a little over two thousand people. That's such a tiny group of people. You can actually know what all two thousand of those people think and then vote right. Correctly. Right, it, it's not out of realm for reps in single member districts. Like we have some single member districts where they represent. 1900 people who vote on the state rep then we have some multi-member districts for like 60,000 people wrote on vote on 17 reps uh but in the single member districts it's not out of the realm for a state rep to know by name every single one of their constituents (laughs) (laughs) that that should be the goal of every state rep in america i think well i mean tell that to somebody in brooklyn right uh, yeah, I mean, I ran I ran for uh, New York City Council, mm-hmm. and my constituency would have been uh, about a hundred and twenty thousand, I think, something like that, uh, of actual people, like forty forty thousand voters in the district. Uh, so yeah, yeah there's That's no way I'm learning all of their names. Yeah. That's just city council. The state rep districts are bigger. Well, I joked with Jeff Hewitt once after he got elected. I'm like, well, Jeff, I'm running for U.S. Senate. Uh, even if I win, your jurisdiction would still be bigger than mine. Like, there are more people in Riverside County than there are in New Hampshire. That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, uh, so we're trying to get uh, Nick to run for co- for Senate. Uh, or Valerie on, on the sh- or Valerie, that would be great. Uh, anybody on the short list for challenging Sununu in your mind? Sununu is running for Senate. We all know how it's going to happen. It's what his dad did. It's what his brother did. It's what Hassan did. It's what Shaheen did. Three terms as governor, then run for Senate. Right. <laughs> he's term is as he's not term limited. There's no term limit. It's just what you do. Three terms. Yeah. Well, he's usually two. Shaheen and Hassan each did two terms and then ran for the Senate. Um, we, my theory is that Sununu chose to run for governor again instead of Senate this year because of how popular Shaheen was. He knew he couldn't beat her. Mm-hmm. But Hassan, Hassan, oh, he'll beat Hassan in the. He won re-election by seventy points in a blue wave. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That is a good point. Um, he is a pretty popular governor for being such dog shit. <laughs> I mean, I, I have to hand it to him. With the exception of the death penalty, marijuana de- uh, legalization, and this COVID stuff, he might be the best governor in the country. Not a high bar. There's, there's not a high bar there, but he, he's tried and true. Like, he's... The the uh, the Democrats gave him one of the best campaign ads ever, I think, and he didn't run with it. They were so pissed at everything that he'd vetoed this uh, past two years that they set up a graveyard 
on the commons in front of the state house, and each gravestone just read the name of a bill that he vetoed. That's awesome. That's, yeah. yeah, that's a campaign <laughs> ad. That's I thought that's so a too. Positive ad. Uh, sometimes the Democrats don't really understand uh, what the Republicans do that's wrong. Exist, they, right? They they think that that's <laughs> that that's the answer. Yeah. That just the existence of Republicans is right. terrible. Um, and no, I think sorry. Well, even libertarians, libertarians get it wrong all the time with what's wrong with Democrats and Republicans. And there's a lot of there's a lot of people in the liberty movement who hate the left more than they love freedom. That is a fact. Uh, I have been battling uh, idiots on Twitter for like months now. Uh, you know, I'm a I'm a right libertarian. Uh, I pretty close to the middle line. But I'm a capitalist. I don't believe yeah. in big government. I don't believe in welfare. Uh, but if you're going to pitch me an idea like Andrew Yang's original plan for UBI, which included scrapping basically the rest of welfare and using all of the overhead budget that we pay, uh, like people within those departments to also pay for UBI, I am, I'm going to be okay with that. You know, especially if you're also campaigning on a platform of like decriminalize all drugs, pardon Assange and Snowden and all of these other great things. That it's a starting point. But I, I, I mean, there's a way you could justify every bad proposal coming out of the left right about now. If and like if you have an if and an and on it, mm -hmm. um, like I, I could come up with a great student loan forgiveness plan. And I did. I pitched one in the basement to some friends the other night. I'm like, all right, let's forgive all outstanding student loans. Let's also give a rolling tax credit for the amount repaid in student loans for anybody who's made a payment over the past 15 years to allow them to roll forward over the next five years against their income taxes. And let's cease the federal student loan program outright. Yeah. I'm okay with all of those things. Like, because I get that a would be a, and, and that a, would be a and better work. economic stimulus than either of the stimulus bills we've gotten this year. Right. <laughs> Just cancel 2020's income tax would be a better stimulus package than we've seen this year. <laughs> Let's not get ahead of ourselves. They wouldn't know what to do. <laughs> right. They wouldn't know where to get the $900 billion they just sent all over the world. Right. And I would be really pissed as someone who didn't pay income tax. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yeah, I'm not going to pay taxes this year. Uh, not even a little bit. I didn't make a single freaking dollar that got taxed. This oh, <laughs> no, I have not paid a dime in taxes and it hasn't even been by accident, like intentional. Um, the though, unfortunately, the way the unemployment system works and the way my income is structured combined for a very unique scenario. Um, I, I used to work at an insurance brokerage in Massachusetts, mm -hmm. I worked on commission. Um, I made 80% of my yearly income between October 15th and December 7th every year during open enrollment. Makes sense. Um, so I'd be working the rest of the year at like five to $6 an hour, just doing setup for my $250 an hour for <laughs> six weeks, um, working 60 hours a week. And 
Massachusetts unemployment is structured as such as your weekly benefit is not based on your yearly earning. It's based on your highest two quarters in the past six quarters, which for me included two Q4s when I lost work in February of this year. And so the Massachusetts unemployment calculation ended up paying me about four times what I would have been making every week. Nice. And between that and my company actually taking off because people didn't want to shop and everything was online and buying clothes online became a thing. Uh, I've seen bigger corporate profits on the company I own and I am making more money by not working than working because of the scheme of the way unemployment is structured. And eventually I'm sitting here wondering, I'm like, I don't know if the state wants anyone to go back to work. (laughs) Why are they offering this kind of a deal if they ever want anyone to go back to work? Right. Uh, Yeah, I think I definitely think that especially this year, they've been trying to keep people out of work. And maybe that's that's. you know, a COVID related good thing that, you know, they're just trying to keep people home and in their houses. And if that were the case, we would have gotten better stimulus packages, I think. Uh, but if you're reliant completely on government income, then you're significantly less likely to say things like all taxation is theft or, um, you know, right. That, well, I mean, welfare is theft, you know, because it's what's keeping you alive. Um, and, you know, you and I are both pretty grounded in what we believe enough to where getting an unemployment or a stimulus check isn't going to completely make us rethink our philosophy. But for the people that are significantly less engaged than you and me, uh, they're just going to be like, OK, yeah, the government, the government's fixing my problems. The old Larry or Harry Brown quote of government's breaking your legs and then giving you a crutch. Saying, you know, isn't it great you can walk because of me? Right. <laughs> I mean, I, no, to be perfectly frank and honest, I've just been buying a lot of Bitcoin with all this government money all year, and that turned out to be a great idea, too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I am so much regretting. I almost spent a decent chunk of that $1,200 check on Bitcoin, um, <laughs> and I didn't. And it was still at like six or seven grand back in March. Uh, now it's at 23 grand so you know that that $1200 could be almost three grand by now Um, and I I made that mistake I did buy some Bitcoin a couple months back just before it did that last big jump so I got I got a little bit of the benefit from that my mother always asked me she's like why are you still buying Bitcoin it's gonna crash I'm like mom I started buying Bitcoin at three dollars I'm up right (laughs) (laughs) my dad says the same thing and he uh my dad i give him a lot of credit for for what why i believe what i do politically uh you know he definitely raised me to stockpile ammo and not trust the government um 22 long rifle will be the currency of the apocalypse yes uh and and you know my dad is the kind of person that's always been you know, he taught me to respect the government and the police and, and all of those agencies, but to interact with them as little as humanly possible. <laughs> so, uh, but 
I talked to him about Bitcoin and yeah, he's still where I was two years ago of, oh, this is just a stupid internet thing. Like John, John, if John McAfee is pushing for this, it must be stupid. Like <laughs> John McAfee is a terrible representative. Um, but I, I mean, at the point it, it is kind of a stupid internet thing. It, it's a stupid internet thing and a stupid New Hampshire thing. I, I'm a, I'll move right up and say it. It's like the only two places in the world right now where you can kind of live off crypto without like converting it back to dollars is New Hampshire and Antigua. Um, and Antigua only because Roger Ver is down in Antigua going door to door and business to business, setting up every business on the island to take Bitcoin cash. Mm-hmm. Um, but New Hampshire, I pay my rent in Bitcoin. I, I, I can buy my groceries in, in, in um, there's four restaurants in town that take Bitcoin and Bitcoin cash. Um, I can shop on Amazon smile and use Bitcoin on Amazon um, through purse.io. I can, um, in a pinch, run down to the ATM, put Bitcoin in the ATM and it hands me dollars. Like mm-hmm. this is a place where I can live off of crypto and I'm not the only one doing it. I know a lot of people uh, around here who living off the $30 we spent at Porkfest in 2012 for the past few years, um, managing to get by on that. And it's allowed us to basically opt out of the system and not pay taxes because we don't have income. We're, we're, we're living off a wise investment that we've, that doesn't exist on any market. The government has the ability to track. Right. Which is the most brilliant part of it, and <laughs> I think uh, I think what what crypto really needed was a few uh, proofs of concept. You know, a place like Antigua or New Hampshire where they can assimilate enough to prove that it actually works. And I think they're succeeding in that mission because, uh, like you said, most places in the country you have to convert your Bitcoin back to dollars before you can really do anything with it. And, and there's a tax proposition in there. Right. There's taxes and there's like exchange fees from Bitcoin. Right. So, you know, if you're just buying and selling Bitcoin back and forth all day, uh, you're probably going to be losing money on the exchange rates and stuff like that. If you're trying to like live off of Bitcoin in Colorado, which I was doing last month. And, uh, you know, it just it just doesn't quite work out well. Um, but when you have places like Murphy's Tap Room that has a, a Bitcoin ATM in their atrium, like that makes life a lot easier. Yeah, and I, I'm I'm working on getting the comic shop to accept Bitcoin now, so I can evoke my Magic the Gathering habit with Bitcoin instead of dollars. But, there you go. Um, but the comic shop might be the last holdout. Magic? Yeah, I have met. I have met. Are you not magic? Are you not familiar with the rich history between Wizards of the Coast and the Libertarian Party? I am not. (laughs) Um, The two are very intertwined. Um, Let me find it real quick. So, the inventor of Dungeons and Dragons, Dave Arneson. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was a lifetime member of the Libertarian Party, um, and he worked at Wizards of the Coast in their R&D and game development. And his FBI file read, known associate of the Libertarian Party. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there's a rich history of uh, Richard Garfield. Um, 
who was the creator of Magic the Gathering, was a member of the Libertarian Party. Um, Zach Dolan, you know Zach, right? Yes. Was the first ever Magic the Gathering world champion. He won the 1994 World Championship uh, for Magic the Gathering. Um, The deck he played that game with is worth over like $400,000 now in collector's value. (laughs) (laughs) But um, That doesn't surprise me, especially from the 90s, because that was probably like Mox Opals and Standard, stuff like that. uh, Yeah, he ran a Black Lotus, all five Moxes, and time twister it's a degenerately bad deck but it won back then Uh, (laughs) it wouldn't win today (laughs) regardless of the fact of how expensive they are um or how many of those cards are banned or limited (laughs) yeah (laughs) but there's a rich history between wizards of the coast and the libertarian party as being very intertwined in their development including in and they culminated in the late 90s there was public outcry against wizards of the coast um when magic started to get first first started to get popular like mainstream wise people were freaking out about the satanic images and demonic imagery as the wizards of the coast is brainwashing kids and destroying christian values and it was the libertarians who came to the defense of wizards of the coast's first amendment rights to print the art on their game cards nice this is this might be the coolest story i've heard in some time because i i'm a big fan of magic i've been playing it uh i got into it late for uh, for what, what where most people get into it because I was like 19 when I started playing Magic because uh, my brother-in-law got me into it. Uh, he got my sister into it and then me. Is that, yep. is that a real one? <laughs> yep. It's from my cube. I'm bringing right. the cube to the convention in Reno. Ooh. I will, I will very much enjoy taking part in that. Uh, <laughs> I'm just I'm I'm just over here. I haven't been playing uh for a couple of months now cuz I've just been bouncing around the world or the country. But I'm a I'm a mono red kind of guy. Uh just just burn everyone in the face and have fun. I play commander and I have nine different commander decks. Okay. So <laughs> you're you're a real libertarian. <laughs> yeah. Um no it's a rich in fact Magic the Gathering is how I got into Bitcoin. Okay, that's a story I need to. So I was competitively playing Magic the Gathering online um, at one point when they first developed the online platform, and there became a website. Called, there a website came out called Magic the Gathering Online Exchange, and uh, Mount Gox MTG GOX, and you where you could buy and sell Magic the Gathering online credit and trade Magic the Gathering online cards, and. Then one day somebody offered me Bitcoin for a card. I'm like, the fuck is this? Um, and I accepted it. I'm like, sure, whatever. You sent me Bitcoin for a card. I forgot what the hell it was. I did, had no clue how to spend it or use it. But six months later, Mount Go- uh, Magic the Gathering Online Exchange stopped all operations with Magic cards and became the first Bitcoin exchange at Mount Gox. Huh. Um. And what, like I told that to like Dan Fishman and some people at a convention. I'm like, yeah, no, I, I was. On, I remember being on Mount Gox when Mount Gox was magic cards, not Bitcoin. And <laughs> somebody's like, oh my god, 
I knew the Magic the Gathering nerds, and I knew the Bitcoin nerds. I never knew they were the same nerds. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. There's so much crossover there. Uh, and what I found really weird is, you know, you mentioned uh, the outcry against the imagery and how it's like destroying Christian values and stuff like yeah. that. I heard that a lot when I first got into it. But I mentioned that my brother-in-law is who got me into it. He's a pastor. Like the entire friend group <laughs> that I uh, that I started playing with, uh, they like it was a very strange, like split down the middle, half and a half group. There was the stoners and the church kids that all were best friends because of Magic the Gathering. Um, and at the time, I was like a half Christian and wasn't smoking yet. Uh, so both groups kind of won me over to their thing. I started going back to church. Uh, I made a lot of really good friends uh, in the faith and like people that I was able to talk out, like the crazy things going on in my head as like an 18, 19 year old trying to figure out my place in the world. Um, and then the other half of them turned me into the stoner that I am today. So, <laughs> well, um, it really comes down to like, I, I've been playing magic since 1996. Uh, weird enough for this, but if, born in <laughs> if it were not for Bitcoin, I wouldn't have bought all these this year. Ooh. <laughs> That's a beautiful little handful. <laughs> yeah. So granted, like all of these together was like a whole Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> a singular Bitcoin at this point. Right. Yeah, I uh, love the the what are they called? The whole coiners. Is that what you know, <laughs> people that own more than one Bitcoin? Uh, um, I love that dichotomy. Like oh, I have really into Bitcoin. You only own like point zero something. <laughs> I have spent a Bitcoin on lunch. I wow. I, I remember spending a Bitcoin on lunch for me and a friend. <laughs> When that Bitcoin was $26. <laughs> <laughs> now, now it's gone up a thousand times. Yeah. And... So it's, if I could have back all of the Bitcoin I spent on bacon at Porkfest in 2013, I'd be a billionaire. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, but if there's a good thing to spend billions of dollars on, it is bacon. Like, yeah, wouldn't you rather have billions of dollars worth of bacon, though? This is true. This is very yeah. true. Ooh, billions of dollars of bacon. That sounds like a wet dream. No, but I, I try and point out to people, like, I, there's always that regret. Oh, what if I had held instead of spending? And was the, I justify it by telling people, like, if it weren't for us in 2013, spending crypto willy-nilly on everything... It wouldn't be what it is today. Yeah. <laughs> That's the only way an economy yeah. works, and Bitcoin's no different. So, but like, had I not spent seven Bitcoin in three days on food, <laughs> big, and others doing the same, then those vendors I gave the Bitcoin to would not have had Bitcoin. Mm hmm. And they wouldn't have been invested in Bitcoin going up and it wouldn't have spread to more people and whatnot. But no, I do still have um, I still have one paper wallet left from 2012 um, where we were at Porkfest and they brought up the first ever Bitcoin ATM up there. 
and it was like, yeah, put ten dollars in it, and it gives you a Bitcoin. Hmm. <laughs> and it would no. print out a little piece of paper with a QR code and a private key on it, and it's like, yeah, that's a Bitcoin. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. See, I've I've still yet to see like the physical versions of of Bitcoin. Because uh, there there is an actual like coin as well, right? Oh, you want me to go grab one? <laughs> sure. <laughs> one sec. I had to grab my box full of coins. <laughs> nice. That's, that's worth more than the, the Black Lotus. Possibly. <laughs> um, or this was a favorite one. Ooh. One Bitcoin with the QR code engraved on the back. Okay, that's dope. I love I have always loved the concept of QR codes. And they, they became a fad that died off kind of quickly, and I think they're gonna come back, but I don't understand why they died off so quickly. I think it's like the most useful thing we ever did with technology. Um, I mean, it was up there as far as image recognition of a URL in a pictographic form, but it was really just the first step in bitmap encryption. And I think they died off in usability because so many people started to get annoyed when, ooh, QR code scan it. Damn it, it's not Bitcoin. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> like, I see a QR code randomly. I'm like, I'm going to sweep this wallet. And I'm like, what do you mean this isn't a crypto wallet? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that is where the QR codes kind of started out, right? It was in crypto. And then they moved to the rest of... I think they started out in MySpace. Um, because it, it really is just a cryptographic image. Um, you can store up to... 200 up to well as a base qr code with just like 18 points can store 256 bits of entropy uh worth of data um in a picture form and it's really really easy to decrypt just running it through the um decryption and so you can store passwords in the uh, qr code you can the the more complex the qr code the more you can store in it but it's easy enough to save as an image file on any device or share around, um, there's um, bitmap encryption where you can encode um, very large amounts of data into an image, which is no different than what a QR code is. It's just more complicated, more pixels, more defined. Um, there was an image going around um, a couple of years ago when they were censoring all of the um, Dis distributed arms files on the internet everywhere was censoring them um because the 3d gun files the 3d printed gun files um like twitter was taking down the links facebook was taking down the links it was nuts um a friend of mine actually put together the complete schematics for the 3d printing of the liberator handgun 
and encrypted them into a bitmap image file, which he encoded into a um, just like a portrait he found on Google. <laughs> and he just put that up with um, the label, this is a gun under a portrait of a woman. And if you ran that image through a bitmap decryptor, you got the schematics to build a handgun. That is brilliant. That's some like yeah. 1984 spy level shit. Um, I I mean it's 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 an interesting way to get around the whole government search and whatnot. Um, uh, uh, it's an old trick, but when people used to want to get around the NSA spying after Snowden released everything, mm-hmm. um, sending. We before the at ease of getting encrypted email with proton mail and stuff like that. What we used to do is we would share a uh, Gmail account. Uh, we would share the login and password with each other, and we would encode the messages into bitmap files, attach them to an email, and save it as a draft. It would never be sent, and the NSA would never pick up on it. But when the other person logged in, downloaded the attachment from the draft file, and decoded it, they'd get the message. That is genius. Man, I came into the the liberty movement a little late and missed all the fun. Uh, All of the crime? (laughs) Oh, no, I've definitely done plenty of crime with libertarians. (laughs) Especially with the war on drugs still existing. Um, I've walked down the streets of Manchester smoking weed with Vermin Supreme. So, you know. Who hasn't? Right. I mean, I, I figured I wasn't a real libertarian until I did that. So, right, I made, but I've, I made sure I've seen Republican state reps do that. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I have watched Republican state reps smoke weed with Vermin Supreme on Elm Street in Manchester. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. I I need to hang out with that guy a little bit more because I've only ever seen him in campaign mode, uh, you know, where he's meeting a lot of people and kind of in that politician soundbite mode, uh, which I know I slip into pretty often as well. So I need to I need a longer conversation with him. Yeah, I had the I had the uh, fun time of I brought Kyle Mann, uh, editor in chief of Babylon B, uh, to a party in Manchester uh, nice. to meet local libertarians while he was up in New Hampshire. And the moment we walk into the room, like I was, damn it, because I opened the door with Kyle Mann next to me, and then it's immediately the first thing we see is Vermin Supreme doing whippets. <laughs> <laughs> That sounds accurate. That sounds like yeah. the uh, LP New Hampshire. Yeah, but I was like, damn it, Vermin. We were trying to make a good impression. Never mind. This is your best impression. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, at least it was only with it. Yeah. He wasn't cutting lines or anything. So, you know, it's an improvement for the LP. That time. That time. What? What do you use your lifetime membership card for? <laughs> <laughs> I still need to get one of those. I have. Uh, I think it's I'm a, like one of the only people in my friend group that isn't a lifetime member. It's an extremely expensive cocaine card. <laughs> <laughs> right. I just use my extremely expensive uh, insurance card for it currently. 
That's my that's my go to. I use my Excellus Blue Cross Blue Shield oh. card because I mean it's the only it's it's the only way that that card has actually helped me medicate myself. <laughs> <laughs> so funny story. I I was actually I ended up in the hospital with an infection last week, and uh, I ended up going to fight with the pharmacist afterwards to pick up my antibiotics. Um, I don't have health insurance which is really funny for somebody who sells health insurance. But, <laughs> um, largely because I know enough about the medical system and I'm involved enough with the medical system. I work with hospital ombudsman enough that I know I don't really need health insurance. Um, like paying for it's going to cost me more than I'm going to get out of it. Even when I do have a random hospitalization, I know I can talk that hospital down to 800 bucks for the visit. Cool. That would have been a fraction of my deductible. <laughs> and I had, but I go to the pharmacy and like I'm here to pick up this prescription. She's like, I, I got the prescription. I didn't fill it because I couldn't find insurance for you. I'm like, just fill it. I, I know there's no insurance, just fill it. She's like, Are you sure it's really expensive? And like, no, it's not. It's not expensive. Fill it. And she comes back and she rings it up. She's like, Okay, it's like $460. I'm like, no, it's about $20. Um and, she, and she's like, I'm like, listen, I've worked for um, Envision, the place that owns your pharmacy. Here is my RxBIN number and my employee ID. And she ran it in. And instead of $472, it was $22. Um, had I had insurance, the copay would have been 70 Sounds about right. But the actual drug costs less than what the insurance copay would have been. Right, because the insurance has a deal with these pharmacies to make sure that the pharmacies still make all of their money. Yeah, but it was annoying to me because I'm sitting there like, I'm like, this is an antibiotic that's existed and been on the market for 40 freaking years. How do you get off charging that much for it when I know it's made by 11 different companies? Right. <laughs> and I think, you know, that's the main goal of the healthcare industry right now is to fuck up the free market to where you don't think that you have another option uh they make i think uh doctors and mechanics do basically the exact same thing they've made it so expensive to just get looked at that the idea of paying for a second opinion is ludicrous here's One the problem um doctors don't want it to be that way i right. guarantee you um when was the last time you went to see a private practice doctor I can't years? tell you the last time time I went to see a doctor. When was the last time you saw, I've seen, <laughs> like driven by a private practice doctor? Um, it's pretty rare. There are still a couple up here in upstate New York. Upstate uh, New York, there is, um, and they're not in the Excellus network. They'll only take well care. <laughs> yep, I'll tell you that much. Um, but it's become so expensive to do business as a doctor. Um, that most of these doctors are scraping by and cannot cover their overhead based on insurance reimbursements um, and based on Medicare, because Medicare uh, sets what the usual and customary cost of everything is. And Medicare tells the doctors how much they're allowed to charge for things. And then Medicare only pays 80% of what Medicare says they're allowed to charge for things. And mm -hmm. doctors aren't allowed to balance bill patients who don't have secondary insurance. So they end up not even being able to cover the costs, especially right. when... Um, the insurance companies and malpractice insurance and all sorts of other things have gotten 
the cost of actually performing an MRI, investing in the MRI machine, and having it to be to the point where for the first two years, you have to charge like 500 bucks an MRI just to break even on that. Mm-hmm. But Medicare says, no, you can only charge 300. We're only going to pay you 240. Right. So the doctors are eating most of that cost themselves for years on top of paying back their $400,000 in student loans. So we talk about that a doctor making 120000 a year has no right to complain. After like paying back the loans and the taxes and the insurance and running the business and paying their staff, that private practice doctor is netting about thirty two. Like right. you try living on thirty two grand a year in New York. Right. It's <laughs> just barely above the poverty line. Yeah, and the state of New York considers it well below. You can get financial assistance for your medication if you're below 48 in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, below 100,000 in New York City. <laughs> Which is Which... accurate because anything <laughs> less than six figures in New York City is poverty. Right. <laughs> you're eating ramen noodles. Most My brother's an air traffic controller making uh, six figures plus in New York City. He lives in Brooklyn. He has to Airbnb out his other bedroom to make rent. Like, yep. I don't get it. I, I told him, like, listen, if you move to New Hampshire, they'll transfer you to uh, Manchester Airport. You'll make 120 grand instead of 160 grand, but you can buy a goddamn estate. Right. <laughs> I've been, it's one of my favorite things about traveling this year is I have seen some of the most beautiful houses I've ever seen in my entire life. And then I go home because I used to work in uh, like asset based lending. So, Real estate appraisals are a fun hobby for me at this point. <laughs> um, and so I'll go and I'll find the documentation on these houses and, and appraise them myself. And they're like two, three hundred thousand dollars for like yep. a 12 bedroom, four bath house on the lake in upper Michigan. It's like almost all of the houses that I knocked on this year have been under half a thousand or half a million dollars. Yeah. And yeah mansions i i went to go look at a up in berlin new hampshire two hour drive north of manchester um that's a, way up there yeah a eight family uh complex uh it's eight two bedrooms um with a parking lot off street parking for every unit um 32 parking spots uh and a, a basement and the basement's unfinished and i could finish it out as another two bedroom if i wanted um for a hundred and seven thousand dollars. Whoa. And it has existing tenants. Whoa. That's and a great deal. Un- and each unit's renting for seven hundred a month. That's yeah, that's making your money back extremely quickly. Yeah. I'm doing that math out. <laughs> The problem is it's up in Berlin. That's two years worth of rent, and you make it back. Not even. That's a a profit after your second year. The problem is it's in Berlin, New Hampshire. So, uh, The middle of fucking nowhere. Yeah, if you don't work at the prison or the hospital, you don't work. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that makes sense. So there's a reason there's a federal maximum security prison there. It's because if somebody escapes, there's nowhere to go. Like, congratulations, you're in the middle of the White Mountains in the middle of winter. Right. You better have read uh, My Side of the Mountain a couple of times. And watched Into the Wilds and learned what not to do. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. Uh, So, 
there's a lot to... of property like that up in New Hampshire. If you mm-hmm. want to come back to New Hampshire and you have a job where you can work from home, all you need is a stable internet connection. You go up to the North Country, you can get a brand new three bedroom, fully remodeled granite kitchen uh, on four acres of land for under forty thousand dollars. Yeah. <coughs> Yeah, I was talking to uh, Sarwark about house prices when I was there because uh, he he was when I was hanging out with him, he was in that uh, temporary spot over mm-hmm. by the church. Um, and so we were talking about how cheap that place was and how cheap all the places he was looking at was. And I'm it was blowing my mind because even I think where I'm from is super cheap here in upstate New York. Um you know, my parents just bought like a rundown, almost condemned house for like I think twelve grand uh, that they're <laughs> fixing up. Uh, and so I'm thinking that's great. That you know, you can easily get like a nice, nice two bedroom, like little double wide kind of a house somewhere around here for twenty, thirty grand, easy. And then I went to New Hampshire and figured out that same dollars can buy you like an actually nice place. Yeah. Unfortunately, you will pay property taxes on it, and they are quite steep. And not much worse than New York. Right. Think about that bar, though. Like, not <laughs> much worse than New York. <laughs> yeah, we are. We're one of the worst. That's state. like saying not much farther left than California. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. Yeah. Um, yeah. When you start comparing governments with other governments, you're it's not very difficult to make your state look good. Um, especially when you're comparing it to New York or California. I mean, and then there's the fact that we are the only state in new England without legal weed. Even Canada has legal weed. We are surrounded on all sides. Every border of New Hampshire has legal weed mm-hmm. except New Hampshire. Right. New York, New York can't quite say that because Pennsylvania is still holding out as well. Um, but we're almost in the same spot. You know, Jersey just legalized it. Connecticut legalized it like a year and a half ago. Um, we border uh, uh, Vermont on the other side. So we're almost an island of prohibition as well. And it's the most ridiculous thing ever. Because at least y'all are a Republican state ish. Uh, I mean, it's a purple state, but you know, you have a Republican governor, you have. Like at least somewhat of a logical reasoning for why they're holding out so hard on this. New York should have been one of the first states to go. Uh, I mean, I can just drive to Canada and get mushrooms. Um, the Republicans, I think, actually were had a stronger case for legalization than the Democrats ever did. It was the economic tourism. Mm-hmm. The Democrats always wanted to talk about, oh, just legalize it, just legalize it. Never really much more than that. It was when the Republicans finally started getting on board with, oh, tax revenue. <laughs> yeah. That, that was the and, final and push to start legislature. Right. And uh, legalization has passed your legislature, what, twice now or three times? Three times. Three times. And still nothing. <laughs> Uh, but is that, that, is that the House and the Senate government. or just the House? It's passed the House three times. The Senate has not passed it once. Okay. Oh, we need to flip some of those senators. 
Oh, but they claim they're liberty senators. <laughs> if you claim to be liberty and vote against the decriminalization of anything, you're sorely mistaken. Oh, no. One of them went on a rant and said he could never, ever, ever support legalizing and regulating marijuana because regulation and taxation is bad. Right. So much worse than throwing people in jail. Right. That's why I, I called out uh, Thomas Massey for voting against the Moore Act. Uh, the Moore Act is awful. It's terrible. It contains a whole bunch of stupid bullshit, but yeah. not enough stupid bullshit to vote against it, in my opinion. Massey's uh, just a partisan hack trying to make his way using libertarian clout where he shouldn't have it. Last time I talked to Thomas Massey, I got four minutes into trying to invite him to speak at a conference before he asked me to join the Republican Party. Yikes. <laughs> Seems like you had a little bit better luck with uh, with Amash than Massey. <laughs> Surprisingly. I mean, that took a lot of people bothering Amash for a long time. Uh, the difference was he would at least talk to all of us. Right. Uh, I will say it was funny as hell uh, when he endorsed Joe Bishop Henchman for chair of the party and Josh Smith lost his shit on Twitter. He's like, you've never even talked to me. I'm like, are you the only member of the LNC he's never talked to? Right. <laughs> like, <laughs> Did you even try? Uh, apparently, he, he, he like peppered him with DMs on Twitter. And I'm like, really? I text messaged him. <laughs> <laughs> like, like not that hard to get in touch with Justin Amash um, if you're not an asshole right it, he seems to be like the most down to earth politician in existence right now except for maybe Tulsi Gabbard and on some issues AOC it's true yesterday I swear to god Nancy Pelosi and Twitter were trying to team up to turn AOC into a fiscal conservative <laughs> it was great, wasn't it? <laughs> Watching AOC talk about wasteful spending and passing bills without reading them and democratic corruption. I'm like, this is phenomenal. Like, yep. She still voted yes, though. Of course she did. She was told to. Right. But she is not as good of a whip as we think she is because Rashida Tlaib voted no. That's actually surprising. There were two Democrats, Tulsi Gabbard and Rashida Tlaib, the yeah. only Democrats to vote no on this bill. And there were only six senators total, uh, all of them Republicans, obviously, um, including libertarian favorites like Rand Paul and Mike Lee. Yeah, yeah. Rand Paul is not his father. That is a fact. Um, so you know, I did want to touch on oh, one more thing, because you've been a member of the LP for a significantly longer time than I have. Uh, actually, when when did you join, like, officially and start Officially? Working? 2016. Okay. Um, so not much longer than me then. Um, but how do, you, how do you feel about the the current trajectory of the party? Do you think it's, it's moving in a positive way? I've heard a lot of arguments towards, uh, you know, like, looking at numbers, comparing Johnson's 2016 numbers to Joe Jorgensen this year or something like that, where, you know, a lot of people are trying to make the case that we're moving backwards. Plenty of other people made the case that people that left the party this year were good riddance and were kind of cleaning house and starting from scratch in some ways. Uh, yes and no. How, so, how do you feel about 
where the LP is right now. I, I feel like Johnson 2016 was a goddamn fluke. <laughs> um, to, to to get two such equally detestable candidates on either side where we could honestly say we're not pulling from the left or the right we're right down the goddamn middle and America's just pissed um, I, I think Johnson's 2016 results were far more indicative of the fact that the media was looking for another option. <laughs> like, there were points in times where like, like Johnson got regular recurring media coverage, not because the campaign was well put together. They were <laughs> a goddamn shit show internally. Um, but because the media was desperate for something else at times to like, God, not these two. Yeah. Um, and you could see that the media was not of the same mind this time around. That they no, were, they, they enjoyed weren't. pushing this, uh, this partisan divide and uh, the us against them mentality, yeah. regardless of where you were. Um, it, it, it even comes down to alternative media. Like Joe Rogan admitted that he voted for Joe Jorgensen. Never had her on the show. Nope. He had Larry Sharp on the show, but didn't have Joe Jorgensen. And it was a great show. Yeah. Um. But it comes down to like Joe Rogan's running a business with his show. He's that's his source of revenue. And I, I explained to somebody like, why wouldn't he have Joe Jorgensen on the show? I'm like, because he's not really thrilled about her. She's like, he's voting for her because she's another option, but he's not thrilled about her. And if you're running a podcast of that magnitude, your guests are going to be people that you're thrilled about having on mm-hmm. or increase your audience. Yeah. And Joe, Joe Jordan did either one of those things for him. <laughs> right. <laughs> did you watch his uh, the election day uh, stream? I did not. Okay. So I actually, that that's what my TV was on for election night. I was like, I'm not listening to Fox News or CNN. <laughs> tell me what's going on. Uh, so it was him. It was Kyle Kalinske. And it was, I think. Uh, it wasn't Tim Pool. It was somebody else. Um, it was great. Uh, not as good as 2016's stream because that was significantly better. I don't know if you caught that one. That one's one that I would suggest going back and rewatching if you have three and a half hours to kill. Because uh, he did a stream in 2016 with like a dozen different comedians at the comedy <laughs> store. Um, so it was like live audience. Uh, they were just all up on stage, sitting at a table. Bill Burr was sitting over to the right side of the screen with a laptop out, open, like calling out the election results. While Joe Rogan and um, Burr, I can imagine Burr calling election. Right, it was great, <laughs> but you can see the entire like demeanor of the room change uh, when Trump starts to pull ahead because, <laughs> you know, everybody's kind of in a, like the name of the episode is the end of the world podcast. Like it's the whole energy. Almost everyone on stage voted for Johnson or didn't vote. There were a couple of women specifically that voted for Hillary. Um, but even that wasn't all of the women on the stage. So it was very like, fuck it. Whoever wins the world is over anyway. Um, but when it was clear that Trump was going to win, you could tell the LA crowd just started to to die inside. Yeah. And oh it my was God. hilarious to watch. There, 
the the YouTube compilations of uh, reporters calling it for Trump that night, and you just every time a reporter on any major network is like, we're calling it for Donald Trump, like <laughs> dying inside. It's like it's beautiful. It's like that's raw comedy. It's like, but nobody saw that coming in 2016 except for everybody. Right. Like, I I legitimately. Uh, I legitimately thought Clinton was going to win. Uh, I obviously voted for Johnson. Um, but I I waited up until like 1 a.m. that night to see who who they were actually going to call. I did the same thing this year. I was up to like 2 or 3 just waiting on something. Um, when I went to sleep, Trump won. When I woke up, Biden had won. <laughs> so I, I'm not going to lie. It was, a, it was a tough decision for me this year, living in a swing state where my vote matters disproportionately more than yours does in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, as much as I love Joe and as well as I've gotten to know her, like I've taken her out to dinner and let her order lobster on my tab before. I love Joe. Um, but I was real torn in that ballot booth that morning. Like, do I vote for Joe or do I vote for Trump? Because as much as I hate Donald Trump, uh, I ended up voting for Joe. But as much as I hate Donald Trump, he is objectively speaking the best president in my lifetime. Yeah, which is hard to say, but it's true. I I would agree because uh, like, technically Clinton doesn't count for me. I was like, three Clinton counts for me. Office. Bush Senior, Bush Senior counts for me. But of every president in my lifetime, Donald Trump is the only one who has not started a new war. That's fair. He tried. He tried. <laughs> There's some conflicting reports about that. But <laughs> regardless, it yeah. makes him objectively the best president of my lifetime. If he would have decriminalized marijuana, I I would have considered voting for him. I'll actually I'll be honest, I didn't vote uh this year because I was in Colorado on election day. Um and I didn't I didn't do my absentee ballot stuff nearly in time. Uh, Not like your vote mattered in New York. Right. Um, I would have liked to have voted in Colorado to try to vote against. They they passed a ballot initiative in Colorado this year that makes the it makes the all of co- the people in Colorado's presidential votes completely meaningless from here on out. Uh, they voted to give all of their electoral college votes to whoever wins the national popular vote. Uh, wasn't that only if once enough states to have 270 electoral votes signed on? Nope. That was the original plan. <laughs> but because the people in Colorado are a little too trusting of their government, uh, what actually ended up passing didn't doesn't have that caveat it's just it's just now that's how it works now your vote does not matter if you're voting for the president in colorado it just i mean colorado's governor is is one of the first bitcoin millionaires this is true and now he has covid (laughs) everyone's got covid right i still can't believe that i i haven't gotten it yet uh well i mean I got tested 11 times over the summer. Every test came up negative. And I'm sitting there like, I'm running a petition drive in Maine and a petition drive in New Hampshire. And I am out every day 
talking and shaking hands with no less than 400 people a day. How have I not tested positive? Right. Yeah, I was out door knocking literally all summer. I took like March through June off. Uh, when Tulsi dropped out, I went home and I started working for Yale on the 4th of July or day after 4th of July. And from there till what, three weeks ago, four weeks ago, I was, yeah, out shaking hands with hundreds of people a day in, and then flying from state to state, doing it in some of the worst cities you could possibly be doing it in. <laughs> I literally, in March, when I came home, I flew through the three worst cities you could possibly be in in the country because this was early March when cases first started to blow up and I flew from Salt Lake City through Detroit into New York City and then up to upstate New York. Uh, so like, and I was literally sitting on one of those planes with somebody on their way home from China. Swear to God. Uh, I'm like, I'm going to get COVID. Like, I'm screwed. I'm totally screwed. At that time, Salt Lake City had more cases per capita than any other part of the country. Uh, they were like the first major hub for whatever reason. I don't understand that. No one goes there. No one leaves there. But, um, yeah, I, I just got tested for the first time in this whole thing about two weeks ago because I flew into New York and they'll arrest you if you don't get tested. <laughs> Uh, swear to God, I had to fill out a form giving them my address and my phone number and promising to get tested within four days. Uh, otherwise, they would come knock on my door with a test. Uh, like literally armed uh, National Guard soldiers waiting hey, for me at the airport when I landed. To be honest, like I have no problem getting tested and I, I would get tested a lot more frequently if it were more available. Yeah. Um, because I think information is valuable and it, yeah. The more information I have, the more accurately I can, or more like safely, I can plan my own doings. Um, the last week, we had an incident in my social group or community where like three people tested positive out of the fucking blue. Um, which, mind you, I'm surprised we made it this far. Because uh, so <laughs> a lot of libertarians have been doing things like refusing to wear masks. Right. Uh, refusing to social distance going to bars that are closed and blacking out the windows and still having parties every night i'm surprised we made it this far without anybody getting sick but um i went to, and between that and me being in the hospital on sunday i'm like oh, i should probably get tested then i realized i'm like they didn't test me at the hospital yeah that's kind of weird yeah they just asked me a bunch of questions and then treated me and let me go I'm like, all right uh, but they did not test me um, so I went to go try and get a test and I'm like, are you asymptomatic? I'm like, no, sorry, can't do it. There's such a backlog on tests now that I wouldn't be able to get a test without driving two and a half hours away. That's ridiculous. And I'm like, well, okay, then I'm going to assume I don't have it. <laughs> like, <laughs> Right. Yeah, and the, the last thing that I want to do is be a symptomless carrier. Uh, I mean, I'm 23 years old. I I don't eat very well, but I, and I smoke, but I'm a fairly healthy individual. Of the friends of mine that have tested positive, uh, you know, most of them didn't have very many symptoms if they were, if the ones that live a similar life to me. So I, 
could have easily have had it and not known about it for months. Uh, well, that's the thing. It's like everyone I know that got tested, the, the tested positive, they test, they got tested because they were exposed to someone who was sick, who had symptoms. Um, none of them got sick. It's been two weeks at this point. None of them have shown a single symptom, even though they tested positive. Mm-hmm. I think that's the scariest part of COVID for me um, was when they started talking about the symptomless carriers and the fact that you could be killing the people around you without having a clue about it. Um, I think a mixture between that and the transmission rate is what makes this so much worse than the flu. Everyone's, ah, it's it's not as deadly as the flu. Right, but it's 10 times as easy to transfer from person to person, and you're significantly more likely to have it without knowing it. So it's worse than the flu. People that are trying to make it sound like it's not, I think, are living in kind of a delusional. Yes and no. So I've been been put in a weird spot by COVID, (laughs) politically and professionally. Because my actual academic background is in emergency management, and homeland security, and I studied human virology and epidemiology. Oh, nice. Um, never did anything with it because I found out real quick after graduating that I really, really hated working for FEMA. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but that was real quick. I found that out. Um, this is just a bad flu. That's really all it is. The problem is... Most Americans are ignorant about how compromised our healthcare system is every winter from the normal flu mm-hmm. and how close to being overwhelmed we are with the normal flu every flu season. Mm-hmm. Um, so that when we say this is, this is just a bad flu, a bad flu that overwhelms the hospital system isn't 200,000 dead in flu season. It's 2 million. Uh, it, 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 it can happen. It's like out of the blue. Um, there, there's not a far stretch from um, the hospital system being able to handle it and mitigate deaths to under 100,000 in the flu season to the hospital system not being able to mitigate it and that like 10% extra patients means 40% extra mortalities. Mm-hmm. Um just the way our infrastructure is designed. Right. And that is fixing that problem is a whole bunch of different things that, you know, it's not just wearing a mask and washing your hands. (laughs) Um, We need a more robust health system in America, just in general. Unfortunately, Ain't nobody going to do that. <laughs> right. Edward Kaiser and Ted Kennedy already fucked up that for everybody. <laughs> yeah, it's not going to it's not going to get much better until we start attacking the actual root problems. Like the fact that uh, nurses can't do anything without a doctor signing off on it. You mean the HMO Act of 1973? Yes. <laughs> Uh, I think uh, Dan Fishman, I think, has has labeled out the issues in the healthcare industry better than most people that I hear talk about it. Um, I think I think he's one of the best people I've ever talked to about accurately and and legitimately blaming government for every problem in America. <laughs> he he has his his talking points down very well. 
Uh, well, I mean, I think Dan was in a unique position to develop his views on healthcare when he was spent so much time sitting between me and Peter Everett arguing <laughs> over healthcare, where <laughs> me coming just coming from the insurance and the epidemiological side of things, mm -hmm. and Peter, who's an oncologist at one of the top medical universities in Boston, um, right. lecturing uh, Dan for years about what we thought was wrong with healthcare in Massachusetts. Right. And he worked in like hospital administration he too, right? He did hospital administration and IT and tech too. So is um, getting me from the insurance perspective and then uh, Peter from as a doctor's perspective and Dan from an administrator's perspective, like mm -hmm. we, the, between the three of us, it was like, it all boils down to fuck Ted Kennedy. <laughs> <laughs> like if you could have time travel you could kill one person it wouldn't be hitler it'd be ted kennedy <laughs> like yeah they shot the wrong kennedy yeah they shot two of them they missed the one that actually caused the problems yeah but if ted kennedy and edward kaiser and richard nixon were not all friends we wouldn't have hmos destroying health in america Right. Uh, it it is amazing how how few people understand what what happened in American history to make these things as fucked up as they are. Uh, the other the other main one is is college. You know, if you actually follow the timeline of when college prices started to skyrocket, there's a very clear thing that happened. Um, and you know, you can go back and you can Google this, you can double fact check this. Anybody watching, um, student the, loans became a thing, student loans became a thing. Then the government said you can't go bankrupt on your student loans, and then the banks and the colleges got together and were like, Hey, we're making money hand over fist here. Um, colleges told the banks you need to start letting more people take out loans and banks told the colleges you need to start accepting more people so that we can all make more money <laughs> and and you need to jack up your prices so that we can make more money and the colleges were like shit you're right we can jack up our prices and and we're guaranteed to get this money because the federal government made it so so why not charge half a million dollars for a, a phd And now we have half a million dollar PhDs, and it's ridiculous. Yeah, it boomers boomers often overlook what inflation of cost has done to succeeding generations, and they say, "I worked my way through college, pay off your damn loans." I'm like, bitch, you worked your way through college part time at a fast food joint, right? Like, <laughs> Right. As we mentioned earlier, we have doctors struggling to pay off their student loans. Yeah. That was not a thing in the boomer generation or even really Gen X. Right. It's, I, I believe millennials are the first generation that will be institutionally worse off than the generation before them. Mm -hmm. And it's only going to keep getting worse. Yeah. Yeah. Gen Z is going to be fucked even more. Yeah. Uh, Luckily, luckily, I, I I came just before the cutoff, and I call myself a millennial. Uh, <laughs> Gen Z is something else, uh, but yeah, it's it's staggering when you actually start to compare the numbers of what an hour's worth of work can get you now compared to twenty years ago. It's it's 
just not the same world and to try to compare oh well i did this or i did that and i turned out fine uh, right. first of all i'll say if you lived a hard life and were successful and you make the argument that i did all that and i turned out fine you should have to go through it too you did not in fact turn out fine you turned out a shit person. <laughs> like, you, you did not turn out fine. So maybe we should take a look at that and figure out what we could give the next generation to make sure they don't turn out to be pieces of shit that, that see all of their hardships in life as a challenge that the next generation must also overcome. Uh, it, it, it's the NIMBY attitude. Uh, if I had to do it, you have to do it, but don't do it in my backyard. Right. And I, I even run into that an issue with like dyed in the wool libertarians who are at their core just NIMBYs. Um, it's like, oh, the government shouldn't be punishing homeless people. You shouldn't, uh, but uh, evict them if they're in my park. Right. Like my property values are suffering because the government is making them suffer. So mm -hmm. the government needs to do something about it. So my property values recover. Right. I talk a lot on the show, especially lately, about libertarian philosophy compared to libertarian politics. Uh, <laughs> and I make the argument that like a solid 70 to 80 percent of the LP only is libertarian in politics uh, because libertarian philosophy is, you know, you can be as conservative or liberal as you want as long as you're not forcing your ideals or way of life on other people. Right. Uh, so when you have presidential candidates uh, or even uh, down ballot candidates campaigning on, you know, day one, I'm going to end the war on drugs. It's the same thing as Biden campaigning on day one, I'm going to cancel all student loans. You know, it's still executive overreach. It's still pushing your views on other people in a way that's not how the Constitution was written. Uh, so I think uh what you're talking about falls falls right in line with that this whole nimby mindset of the individual is only important when the individual is me right um, as long as me and mine get ours the rest can get fucked right uh where true libertarianism is all your rights all the time fighting for the biggest minority which is the individual right and all individuals not it's not about your individual freedoms it's about individual freedom period like hard stop <laughs> <laughs> like, that's the tweet send it <laughs> so i i wish more people would uh kind of adopt this libertarian philosophy and the other thing that i believe wholeheartedly is that libertarian philosophy is present more rampant in other parties than it is within the LP in a lot of ways. You know, you have candidates like Tulsi Gabbard, who's part of the duopoly. Um, you know, we've seen her be a puppet a couple of times, um, but she at least embodies this idea of my job as commander in chief is not to push my ideals out of the people. Um, right. So I, I, I argue that Tulsi ran a million times better of a or more libertarian of a campaign than George Organson did. <laughs> uh, Policy-wise, there were some things that Tulsi really started to strike. Tulsi lost New Hampshire because of her guns. <laughs> See, 
I hear that so often, but by the time the New Hampshire primary came around, Tulsi's gun policy had been radically changed for over a month and a half. Didn't matter. And I know. I know. Because NHPR and the billboards didn't change. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah, I had. I got to partake in a couple of conversations with her and people in the upper echelon of her campaign and um you know i've mentioned him a couple of times uh tonight and i think you know reed coverdale uh actually gave handed her like in a manila envelope like a a letter it was like nine pages or something like that detailing why her gun policy is wrong and why she doesn't even believe her gun policy based off of her voting record and her rhetoric from previous campaigns. Uh, and she listened. You know, it took yeah. her a little while to get her to actually read it because she was a busy woman. Uh, but she read it and she changed her gun policy. Uh, it, it's, it's and I, I know it's little, too little too late for a lot of the more right-wing libertarians, unfortunately. Even no, even Democrats in New Hampshire, the Democratic primary, people don't realize that the constitutional carry passed in New Hampshire with 40% of the Democrats voting for it in the House. Like New Hampshire Democrats are weird, okay? <laughs> like like your your typical hard right Republican in New York or Massachusetts would be our average democrat in new hampshire <laughs> like these people like they sure they want government health care they want unemployment they want security but don't you dare fucking touch their guns <laughs> it's, it, it's it's a weird mentality. Like a new york republican but Ex it, expand government just don't touch my guns yeah it, it, it it's weird because like i could see the difference in the crowds at Tulsi's events that I went to just like to observe and like me and Nick went to some, um, my friend Andre had a hardcore crush on some kid who kept showing up. So he kept coming to the Tulsi Gabbard events because he wanted to find that little gay kid that was running around. <laughs> um, Ooh, I'll have to figure out after, yeah. after we stop recording, I'll have to figure yeah. out who that was. Uh, <laughs> um, and, but there was a noticeable difference in the crowd that showed up to her rallies before and after the gun control ad ran. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was, it, it went from uh, she's different, like a whole bunch of independents, libertarians and like center leaning Democrats. Like, yeah, like I thought Tulsi was going to win New Hampshire. And then Tulsi read a gun control ad. It's like, nope. <laughs> yeah that was that was probably the worst thing she did yeah in her entire campaign yeah. that was it, her aleppo moment right uh, but i'm sitting there like even george carpenter is like what the fuck <laughs> yeah i i definitely wish that reed and i could have got to her before she ran that ad we would have been a lot better off i also yeah. had very high hopes of her vote totals in new hampshire i didn't think she was gonna win i was i was projecting like third or fourth um in like somewhere in the, like the middle to high double digits of percent and so one day i went to both her rally and pete Buttigieg's rally the same day uh, <laughs> they were going on simultaneously I, I walked from the park to the murphy's back and forth nice. because uh to be fair 
I was not a fan of the veg, the vegan buffet that Tulsi provided. I, I was more a fan of the pizza that Pete provided. Yeah, I, I tried. I tried to, I tried to convince people that that was a bad idea. I, I legitimately did. Uh, <laughs> Murphy's has such a good menu, and y'all pick like the four worst things on the menu. <laughs> like, Seriously, um, Murphy's is a libertarian tap room. Like, yeah, like and, their best meal is their burgers and their steaks. And yeah, but Tulsi had tap room packed every square inch. There was not a place to sit. Um, it was overflowing into the street, out of the door of both the downstairs door and the upstairs door. I walk across the street to the park where Pete is meeting with people one-on-one -on -one because there were seven people there. Damn. And Pete won New Hampshire. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> I never got to make it to one of his events. I almost went to one because I was out door knocking out east somewhere. Uh, and he was holding an event at, uh, actually, no, it was out west. It was in uh, Lebanon. Um, yeah. And he was holding an event at a high school that I was I was this close to stopping and going in just for the off chance of shaking his hand just because I thought he was gonna I I thought he was gonna win for a time. <laughs> I was like these honestly he would have been better than Biden. He he would have been a better puppet than Biden. Honestly uh, there was not many people in the primary who would have been worse than Biden except for Harris and Warren. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately we still got Harris. Right. Uh, yeah, Pete Buttigieg, what I have always found interesting about him was that when he announced his candidacy, he was a good candidate. Ish. I mean, he tried to be the white gay Obama. Right. But he was he was progressive. He was end the wars. He was Medicare for all. He was he was a little Bernie at the beginning. And then. You can watch his Twitter feed and his FEC uh, timeline perfectly because as soon as he starts getting millions of dollars, his rhetoric changed within a day of, of his campaign dollars skyrocketing. All of a sudden, Medicare for all might not be the best idea. Maybe ending the wars isn't what we need to be doing. Maybe... <laughs> These millions of dollars that I got paid from the health and military industrial complexes are going to change my mind on a couple of things. Uh, and he became just another establishment puppet. They effectively bought out probably, arguably, the best progressive candidate that, that the far left had in the beginning. And they bought him right out before he could gain any traction as a progressive. Yeah, the, the question is, was he ever? And I will say this: for the all of his events that I did go, he was the most boring candidate. <laughs> really? Um, he had a can. didn't help. You, you didn't have high, high hopes, you know. No, he was just like his actual speech was like very towards the end. There, Tulsi's got pretty canned too, uh, but Pete's was the exact same canned speech the entire time, mm -hmm. um, and it was. It just never felt genuine. Yeah. Yeah. By towards the end of Tulsi's campaign. Um, so all of January, I was working in an office, so I wasn't actually going to her events. Yeah. But like 
towards the end of me going to every event of hers because there was about a month and a half stretch where I was running like the sign-in table Mm -hmm. and the merch table and so I was there for every single event I would go take a nap in her green room while she was speaking (laughs) regularly because I've heard it before (laughs) like I will say one of my the Murphy's one of the Murphy's events one of the later ones when she told AJ to go fuck himself uh not in those words, but it was beautiful because AJ Olding had made a habit of coming to trying to go to as many different presidential events as he could. And mm-hmm. every time he would ask every candidate to, if they would pardon Ross Albright. That was his only question. He asked it for months to every single candidate. He asked it of Tulsi at her first New Hampshire event up in Concord at the little uh, coffee shop before she even declared she was just visiting new hampshire mm-hmm. um and she's like oh look into it i've never heard of him blah 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 and then like three times later he's asked her at different events and then like her last event he's asking her in manchester she's like listen i'm running a campaign i don't have time for this i remember you you keep bothering me with this <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic yeah uh-huh. <laughs> when something goes off book, it's one of the greatest things. Yeah. Um, I remember we did another event in Manchester. I don't remember. Were you at the one we did at the Rex Theater where she yeah. like phoned in? Yeah, me and Nick uh, went to that one. Right. Um, I remembered Nick was there. I couldn't remember yeah. if it was you or AJ that was with him. Um, but she said she was handing out those lays to everybody. <laughs> And he told uh, our assistant state coordinator to lay his wife for her. (laughs) And I don't even think she knew what she said. But the entire crowd died. And Dan's face was fucking redder than my logo. It was perfect. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, no, that event wasn't what I expected it to be. But, like... I that got invited, so I'm like, I guess I'll come. Like <laughs> that event was a huge letdown. Like as as a staffer, uh, yeah. because we put a lot of work into that event. That was probably other than the that last Murphy's event that you were mentioning, which I didn't yeah. even go to. I was in the office around the corner. Um, that the Rex Theater event we put more work into than literally any other event. We we hired uh, an opening act for music um you know we we did a lot of work and the fucking nancy pelosi fucked it all up for us because Chelsea had to stay in dc for that extra night to vote on uh i think it was the ndaa it was the impeachment and then something else were both in the same day that ended up taking too long um and she couldn't make it and it was just not the same with her on the screen like that it was super awkward uh if she the room started to empty out about 45 minutes in. Uh, by the time she was done talking, the room only had like a quarter of the people in it. It was just not a good event. Um, but it could have been such an amazing event. So that's like right. one of my biggest letdowns of the campaign, in my opinion. It was an odd night. I, I didn't know what really to expect. And I sat down like, this is not what I... I'm like, Nick, why did we get invited to a staff rally? Right. <laughs> handing out all the lays and stuff like that in the beginning and i was like no one no one cares about this we can do this afterwards or something like that 
uh if she had been there it would have been awesome and like a great interaction and getting to see her yeah. interact with her staff would have been a big selling point i think for a lot of people because that's what sold me on her was seeing how she interacted with the people that work for her and the way that she treated me as like a semi nobody uh when i got there i was just like a regular person just knocking doors and volunteering um she remembered my name from the first time she met me uh and then you know sang me happy birthday on my birthday uh <laughs> you know just just a great person uh that treated everyone on her staff with the yeah. same level of respect whether it was her deputy campaign manager or just a random person that showed up to one event to help work the sign-in table uh so seeing that would have been a great selling point, but seeing it through a screen like that was not. Yeah, I just got confused as to what it was. I'm like, this, like, I'm like, I saw the like ad on the website for this event, and like, Nick, we, like, I only came because we got invited. Um, like, who Nick, invited think, you guys? I don't even remember. Um, because I know it wasn't me. I invited Nick <laughs> to. I invited Nick to the Manchester event previous to that which yeah. he did not come to because uh, I think it was the same day as an LP meeting or something like that. Uh, but And then he showed up to that one and got super pissed at me for telling Tulsi that he was there because <laughs> yeah. she shouted him out. Yeah. And he came up to me afterwards. He's like, so do I have you to thank for that bullshit? <laughs> yeah, he's... Um... That uh, he was not happy with that. <laughs> because I did not mean for that to make it to Tulsi. I told uh, the MC of the event, uh, Vince, about it. <laughs> Vince, so that's who it was. Vince invited me and Nick because I had oh. been talking to Vince about doing another event at Murphy's with Free Staters. That would have been great. Uh, Nick, Nick, or uh, um, yeah. Vince is a fantastic human who I think I think he made the biggest personal sacrifices for Tulsi's campaign out of anybody else that I met. This guy had a full-time job at a lab. He was the director of research and development for a small um, like chemical company that made cleaning products and stuff like that. He has a master's in chemistry and like had his life put together and <laughs> almost lost his job because of how many days he took off to help the campaign oh. and then ended up just quitting it instead. Like his boss basically gave him an ultimatum of like, okay, you're either working for us or you're working for Tulsi. Like it's starting to get to be a problem. And he was like, okay, I'm working for Tulsi. Uh, quit his job. Uh, uh, his lease ran out and he didn't renew it started living with us in um, like the campaign housing and just ended up in Hawaii for the last six months he just got back to New Hampshire like this week um, just completely gave up his entire life which was super put together and adultish <laughs> you know I gave up my life for Tulsi but I wasn't doing anything I was running right. the council when I met her I had already quit my job and gave up the lease on my apartment and was a nomad doing nothing with my life or not doing nothing but nothing adultish uh so they give up my life you mean the debt in the couch <laughs> <laughs> yeah when i when i started working for tulsi gabbard i would couch surfing around new york city 
Uh, so they were like, hey, you want to move to New Hampshire? I was like, sure. <laughs> All right. Give me a week. Let me finish up my campaign, and I'm there. Yeah. <laughs> like, fuck it. Got nothing better to do. <laughs> right. Oh, man. Well, we are, we're coming up on two hours now. So uh, if people, thank you if you're still watching um, for, for joining us. Thank you, Justin, for coming on. Uh, you want to give people uh, like your social media stuff so people can find you and follow you and stay connected and hear all your hot takes? Uh, easiest way is me watching me piss people off on Twitter uh, over at O'Donnell number four NH on Twitter. Um, late today and yesterday, I've just been fighting with AOC. It's fun. Um, she keeps trying to send the communists to dox me. <laughs> um, but usually there, Facebook, I'm not really all that active anymore. Um, but if you want to head over to Twitter, follow me on Twitter. It's super fun. You can join in on the fight. And we got killer memes. Killer memes. <laughs> Liberty yeah. memes are the best. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I highly encourage all of you go follow him on Twitter. Uh, great hot takes uh, and debates with random commies. Uh, we'll and... check Mark out. <laughs> That that I I've been talking to people that we all need to run for Congress in 22. Like like everybody, I don't care how legitimate of a candidate you are. <laughs> find find a congressional race that you can declare yourself in as a libertarian candidate, so you can get a blue check. So the entire liberty movement has blue checks. I I feel like the blue checks have been diluted in value. I had mine from before. Oh. <laughs> like I got that, my blue check. Bad. I got my blue check when I published my book. <laughs> Not, and uh, now it's like half my friends have blue check marks. It's like, yeah, I got blue check marks. I'm like, it doesn't mean anything anymore. <laughs> right. Wait, you published a book? I can't. Yeah. I'm not, can't let that one go by. What's your book? Oh, it's called Selling Liberty: uh, How to Communicate Freedom in an Unfree World. Okay. So um, it's I'm basic that tactics and trainings and um how you can incorporate the basic communication skills that most non-autistic people have into communicating your political views as a libertarian. <laughs> too bad too bad the LP is full of autismos. Yeah. So, <laughs> but yeah, no, it's available on Amazon. All right. I am gonna have to go give that uh, a quick look at. Um, if you Google me, Justin O'Donnell, it's one of the first things that comes up actually. All right. Well, again, thank you guys all for uh, tuning in to another episode of the Fight for Liberty show. Um, if you want to see my stupid hot takes, uh, you go at Fight for Liberty or at David Fight on Twitter. Um, just don't pay attention to my Twitter feed after like midnight because it gets weird. <laughs> um, but, but we will catch you again next time. And uh, until then, keep up the fight. Hey guys, thanks for watching. Don't forget to click the like and subscribe buttons below. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fight for Liberty, and support the channel at patreon.com slash fight for liberty. And as always, keep up the fight.